We are the opinions team from Empowered Journalism, and this is the Empowered Opinions Podcast. We have to be something instead of just being a collection of things that we are. Have a clear foundational message from which everything comes. We've gotten too good at segmenting people and saying, well, if you're of this identity, this is the things that you should believe in and therefore we'll say it, when actually we need to be focusing on how do we put forward a vision that works for the whole nation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our seventh episode of Empowered Opinions. And today we've got a really interesting and exciting topic for you guys. We're thinking about where does the Labour Party go next following the recent council elections? There were certain losses, there were also certain wins, but there is certainly a lot of debate about where we think the party should go next. I'm Sanjana, one of the opinion editors, and I'm going to hand over to Ardi, one of our other opinion editors, to introduce our guest today. Great. Thanks, Sanjana. So as Sanjana said, we're joined together by two amazing guests. Uh, we have Nathan Baroda. Uh, who is the Unsworth Labour Party councillor in Bury in Manchester, and Kira Lewis, who works at Labour to Win and is the chair of the LGBTQ plus network at the Cooperative Party and is also running for Young Labour's next LGBT plus officer. Amazing to be joined by both of you today. And I'd like to just hand off uh, maybe to Nathan first, just to give a quick intro of yourself. Sure, I'm Nathan Broder. Uh, I, as of last week, am the Labour councillor for Unsworth Ward in Bury grown up in Barry and very proud to represent uh, home community and looking forward to getting stuff done and uh, putting Labour values into action on Barry Council. Amazing. And Kira? Hiya, I'm Kira. I'm originally from Somerset. I now live in London. I joined the Labour Party when I was 15 and I've been passionately campaigning for a Labour government ever since then. Um, now I'm at Labour to win and really hoping that we can get a really good campaign going over the next few years, hopefully. Instead of us, a Labour government that can truly change lives, that's what I'm hoping for in the future. That's really exciting. And I think both of you are in really nice positions to start making change. I mean, Nathan, congratulations on recently being elected. Um, that obviously puts you in a nice place to deliver for your local communities and kind of shape something going forward. And also, Kira, which is really inspiring to me, you're a youth voice, uh, which I think is even more important as we build the Labour Party and other parties and politics going forward. I think that's going to be a big thing that we talk about today. So let's start off with one of the first questions that we have, which is just sort of reflecting back on the recent local elections um, and some of Labour's losses, including the most major one, which was Hartlepool and the by-election. If you could identify one main reason, which will be very tough because, you know, it's a very complex situation for Labour's losses, what would it be? If I hand over to Kira first and then we can go over to Nathan. Yeah, I mean, it is very complex to jump it down to one issue. You know, I was campaigning on the phones back in the southwest. I was campaigning on the doors in London. I also went and campaigned in Hartlepool too. So... I sort of see some of the different issues that all the different regions are facing. And some of it is people are just sick of the Conservatives, so voting Labour because of that. Some people here were voting Labour because they really liked how green our council is. They really liked how transformative Labour's been in London. And then some people in Hartlepool were voting Labour because it's what their family had done, it's what they've always done. So there's a lot of reasons that people do vote Labour. 
when we're talking about what reasons why people don't vote Labour is similarly complex. I think if we're looking at Hartlepool in particular, I'd say the reason that we couldn't connect with people is just that we'd lost our sense of values. That to me was quite apparent on the doorstep. We'd lost a sense of vision and values and people didn't know what Labour stood for anymore. I think there was a lot of conversations that I was having is people saying, well, Labour's been in power for 40 years in in Hartlepool. And so, well, just because you've got a Labour MP doesn't necessarily mean that we can affect change nationally that will affect Hartlepool in that way. People didn't really know what they were, what, what it was that Labour were putting out our vision for. Lots of discussion around local issues that we weren't touching on. We were talking about big national issues, things that are affecting the country, the pandemic, and trying to bring that back, back to home for people. But actually, people there were talking about um, investment in their area. They were talking about their metro mayor, talking about local schools, talking about the councils. And I think that Labour's in our run up to that last election had lost that sense of like community, of bringing back our ideas to a very local level and making sure ultimately that the people that are speaking to those voters and really sort of championing the way is people from their own communities. I think we were, obviously because of the pandemic, it's much harder to do this, but we're bringing in lots of people from outside Hartlepool to talk about all the issues and the things that we care about, but ultimately the people that know those regions best are the people from those regions whose voices I think we should be championing. I think post-election, now we've seen some successes in that. People that really were champions of their place, for example, Angie Burnham, Tracy Brabin, Dan Norris in the Southwest, people that can really speak to that vision and understand those local areas where Labour won, because that's what people want Labour in power for, to really deliver change locally. So I think that we were too focused on the national picture, who the leader was, what was happening in the National Executive Committee, what it looked like in Westminster, when actually people were really interested in you know, making sure their local council is delivering for them and who can affect decisions and make um, the things they want to see happen. So I think that to me is is what Labour's lost, that sense of community, which is why, as you mentioned at the start, I'm also a really proud member of the Cooperative Party, which really focuses on local politics, cooperative, strong movements in our communities. And I really hope that we start to see a little bit more about place and why it's important to focus on our communities from Labour in the future. I think that's such an interesting and good answer and I think one that I definitely want to explore further as we continue talking about this but I'll quickly pass on to Nathan uh, who will be representing kind of communities so maybe might have more to say on that um, and also across the country and on more national picture as well. I think you're spot on you know we, we need to do a lot to rebuild Labour's infrastructure within communities I think in the post-war period we have that trade union connection collectivised communities at the northeast, mostly in the north of England and, and the West Midlands, but that really gave workers a connection to the party. I think with Thatcher and ever since then, and deindustrialization that's weakened. I think there's it's incumbent on party representatives to build an infrastructure locally that gives people a connection to the party. Be that through community organising, that's a that's a key way that we can do that. It's really embed labour within communities because that's what we're all about. I mean, the Tories are are bluntly opportunistic at a local level, at a national level. Uh, and we need to expose that. And I think it's about having conversations as well. And that's that's the key to it. The Tories can get leather out quite quite easily, um, quite quickly. They have a pretty solid base of support. But to be honest, the more people they speak to, the more likely they are to uh, to come to our side. And I feel like having meaningful, engaging conversations, often non-transactional conversations. How are you today? What, what do you feel about the local area? Listening to people and, and registering their concerns. Uh, I feel like that's the, that's the path back is through organising, through listening, through having those meaningful conversations. 
I think that's something we try to start in, in Elizabeth and in Bury. Hopefully that'll provide a model for other places and and that we can win vaccines like Hartlepool, about the West Midlands, Merrillsea and Tees Valley as we look ahead to the next few years for Labour. I think that's great. I just wanted to ask, um, what do you think it is that people are turning to the Tories for? Is it people just not voting at all and the people who would vote for Labour are just not voting? Or is it something that Tories are offering them that you're not or people in Labour aren't at the moment? Sure. Uh, For me, I think it's probably about security. I think people do trust the Tories with with security in terms of national security and probably uh, financial security to, to a greater degree than they do to us and possibly aspiration too. I think that's a real shame because I think we are an aspirational party. We need to better communicate our offer, better certify that offer. But I think I would say those are the two things. I think they're sort of crystallised together in home ownership. And you see the trend of the seats that are going away from us are seats with high home ownership. How do we re-engage with those voters? It's by offering them economic security, national security, of course, and also aspiration. I really do feel strongly that Labour can and should be an aspirational party. It's one, but Andy Burnham does talk about that locally. He has practiced that uh, as the mayor. And I feel like if we're engaging with people's aspirations, I think, you know, people do want a better community. People want a better life for uh, for themselves. And if Labour are able to provide that, then that's that's our move back. Amazing. And Kira, did you have anything to add? Yeah, look, I think Boris Johnson is a fantastic reviewer of what his narrative should be. He's very good at saying... Well, Theresa May was the Prime Minister then, that wasn't me. David Cameron was the Prime Minister then, that wasn't me. Boris Johnson's become very good at setting his own narrative and controlling his vision of the party in a way that I think Labour have found it much harder to do. Like We are still having to have conversations about Jeremy Corbyn, about Ed Miliband, Gordon Brown, uh, Tony Blair, and even further backwards to before any of us are born, right? But on the doors, people can say, well, you know, David Cameron might have done this, but Boris Johnson's coming and giving in loads of investment. Boris Johnson isn't about austerity. You know, Boris is about investment, et cetera, et cetera. So when they're saying that, it's being able to separate between the histories of the Conservatives and the histories of Labour. I think Boris has done really well at very quickly being able to shake off some of the, the, uh, the baggage of the Conservative Party of the past 10 years and is now able to shape himself as someone who's going to change the country and sort of heal some of these divisions. And you know, I was hearing on some of the doors in Hartlepool where he was, people were saying, well, you know, areas around us have a Conservative MP. If we don't have a Conservative MP, well, they get investment and we won't. So he's also managed to play this great divide where people are, you know, almost held to ransom about voting because, you know, you, you know that if you vote for a Conservative, you'll get infrastructure there. And you'll get development there, as they've seen with the, the Tees Valley Metro mayor, where you know they won the seat and now ploughed loads of resources in there to sort of keep a hold of that. So I think where, where Labour have failed to reshape our narrative, known our history, Boris has been sort of very carefully tra- treading with this, but it's also very clever in that he's just been able to come in and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a great change maker and I'm not like the, those establishment prime ministers that came before, despite it being the same party with, you know, the same staff working for him with mainly the same cabinet, et cetera, et cetera. But he's managed to come in and shape that narrative in a way that I don't think we've been able to without, I mean, a major rebrand or anything over the past 20 years. So and that's also a challenge and I think an important reason when looking at why people have made that change, you know, people that want an anti, anti-establishment politics can somehow shape, vote for a pro, the incumbent prime minister and view him as anti-establishment. It's this great narrative that he's managed to play around himself. And it's a very sort of carefully woven web in that. I think that's really interesting and I think there's a common thread between what you're saying Kira and what Nathan was saying about 
being aspirational because you know I don't personally agree with Boris Johnson's politics or Tory politics at all but I think one thing they've been quite good at in terms of tone is kind of saying this is what we will do uh, whereas it feels to me a lot like Labour seems to be stuck in that past of well this is what the Tories have already done we're not them but not what we are um, I don't know would you agree with that if I go to Kira first and then we can go to Nathan we'll do a little bit of a reverse yeah definitely and I think polls and opinions show this too like where attacks on the conservatives recently landed us lots of hits lots of attention lots of popularity people now describing the same sort of attacks as you know petty or childish or opposing for opposition's sake and I think that it's very hard in opposition to try and frame a narrative around you when you're having to oppose what's happening but also shape what is better when those in power can just continually say well this is what we're going to do next and then do it and also we end up with the narrative that people say, well, Labour say all these things and never do them. Sort of because we've never had the power to do that in the past 10 years. And so when we're sort of compared on that, that equal footing, it's much harder to try and like shape that narrative, especially when we're seeing a decrease in seats each time, a decrease in local councillors. It's very hard to enact the kind of things we want to talk about while holding the opposition to account. So I think Labour needs to be much better in shaping a positive vision of what we can be post-pandemic going into the next election so showing what we stand for we're not just not the Tories we are in our own right a party that's putting forward a strong and coherent vision um we're a party that knows what it stands for has sorted itself out internally has been able to present a manifesto that will change the country for the better it's not just we're not Boris Johnson and we also can't look at our history by saying you know we're not Jeremy Corbyn we're not Gordon Brown we're not Tony Blair we have to be something instead of just being a collection of things that we aren't. And when you are in our, are in opposition, to have that double burden of opposing and also projecting what you want to do. But I think we need to be much more positive in the future. People are starting to tire of opposition and for opposition's sake. Despite that obviously being our job, it's very hard to sell that narrative for over a decade and hope that people still have any idea what it is we want to do when we're back in power. Yeah, definitely. And Nathan, um, did you have anything to add on that and kind of the difficulty of being in opposition as well? Yeah, I think the difficulty of opposition is that you're not the main character. And, you know, I think people in the Labour Party do tend to think that we are the whole time. I think the main reason we didn't do well in these elections is the vaccine balance, uh, certainly in England. And we did well in Wales as a result. So, of course, that's that's absolutely the problem. But as Kira says, we need a, a narrative. We need to stick to that narrative. I think the Tories are a lot better rehearsed in terms of that kind of theatre. I mean, you saw them around in 2017 saying strong and stable and 2019 with Get Brexit Done and they, they have a message and until they sound stupid to people like us who are engaged, it, that's when it cuts through and that's when people can see it. So I think we need to have a similar sort of dedication to a message. Uh, I think one that's focused on values, on labour values, that's the way to cut through and just be absolutely clear and hard-headed in, in terms of reiterating that and reinforcing that. I think also there's a point, as Kira alluded to as well, about the Tories have been in power for 11 years. I mean, you know, I'm in primary school when they came in and I'm now they for council. So it's like, you know, it's completely absurd that they're able to rebrand themselves and they're absolutely shameless in doing so. But I do feel like the more we emphasise that, and I think this is something that, that's, that the party have done well, is they've been in power for 11 years. They've been in power. Just keep reinforcing it, hammering that home and weaken the foundations of the state pre-COVID and that's why we've had such an adverse impact from not the large ways of the pandemic and just keep on hammering that home until you know until the media are able to 
to see past the, the charlatans of, the, of this government and situate their record within the record of Theresa May's and within the coalition before that. Really interesting discussion. I found especially the point about um, the opposition and being the main character versus side character really interesting. And I suppose to go on a narrative perspective that we're talking about, we mentioned Andy Burnham. And I know, obviously, Nathan, you campaigned with him in the Manchester area where Labour did reasonably well in comparison to the rest of the country. And I was wondering what if you had to boil that down, what would you put that down to that specific win? So I think it's a lot about Andy's personality. We took him to Unsworth with on a Saturday afternoon and he was like a celebrity. We're outside a, um, a salon and people were coming out halfway through their appointments to come and say hello to him. But I think it's about his authenticity, his record in terms of attacking homelessness, standing up to the government, delivering on, on his manifesto. But to be fair, it was even in 2017, it was before he even had a record that people still loved him. Um, so he won every award but five in, in 2017, he won every award this time, but... It just goes to show that sort of his personality, his energy um, that he was able to project were absolutely you know, incredibly well received by Greater Manchester residents. And I think that suggests that beyond policy, personality is important and having that authenticity. And that's something that Andy has, even if he's, you know, some people, some people think he's on the wrong side of the East Lancashire, uh, East Lancashire Road. But even so, you know, he has that authenticity, shares those values and is a fantastic communicator. And a combination of those things is, is the key to his success in, in Greater Manchester. Kira, I know you're also an active member of Young Labour. I was wondering if these Labour losses that have happened recently, do you think they're a marker for the times that we're in, specifically with the characters who are particularly in the political field at the moment and the power that they hold with voters, both young and old? Or do you think this might be a trend that young people are likely to follow? And I know we were talking about uh, Labour being in opposition for so many years. Do you think it is... Uh, relevant that people definitely my age and even a little older than me have only ever seen Labour as an opposition figure for most of their lives and will that make a difference in the way they vote as they get older? Yeah I think in terms of long-term trends it's hard to project because when we look at especially the 18 to 20 vote and people are more likely to vote be voting for the first time. 20 years ago they'd be interested in things like university, tuition fees and not they aren't now but it's also a much deeper crisis with things like the climate, uh, with housing and with the economy just not providing good jobs for people during the pandemic so I think that Projecting long-term trends when it comes to young people in particular is going to be extremely hard because of just the rapidly changing circumstances now compared to, say, the 20th century when if you were 18 in 1950 or 18 in 1965, it was, you know, in most material senses, roughly the same experience in terms of housing, your ability to drive a car, get an education, get into the workplace, etc., etc. Whereas between now and even 15 years ago, it's changed so rapidly from you know, the climate crisis exponentially increasing, rents being driven up, poor wages, not being able to break into the workplace as easily. And then when you're in there, also being exploited on zero hours contracts, et cetera, et cetera. So I think long-term trends is hard to predict in, in behavioural senses. But I think that because of that, we've got a huge opportunity to bring in a lot of that support. These are key things that Labour should be banging the drum on from the climate emergency, making sure that When we're investing in infrastructure and in jobs, they are green jobs, green unionised jobs, making sure that young people are aware of their rights in workplaces. I also think that it's really important that when we're focusing on education, we're focusing um, on university and making sure that people that are going to university get a much better deal than 
now where obviously most are driven into a lot of stress or short-term financing options because of poor tuition uh, maintenance loans. Uh, we're usually making sure that when we're having like discussions around actually uh, empowering young people and platforming young people, I think too often young people in all political parties are wheeled out to campaign for MP candidates and councillors and not actually put in oppositions themselves, which is why it's so great to see people like Nathan being put in as councillors and being able to run and take autonomy of their own campaigns. I think that too often political parties look at young people and especially in Young Labour historically and not through the fault of any leader, but for decades now, I've seen young people as a force that can knock on doors and that's the end of our contribution. So I think that Labour has a long way to go to win the trust of young people. I think the last few years has seen some policies that have attracted young people more. But I think it also needs to play into a wider focus of how we are attracting the nation as a whole. We've gotten too good at segmenting people and saying, well, if you're of this identity, this is the things that you should believe in and therefore we'll say it. When actually we need to be focusing on how do we put forward a vision that works for the whole nation, to wrap up all of these things and say, well, this is all the things that we can deliver for the country. But we need to be platforming people from all parts of society that can talk about the issues that they care about most in the part of the Labour movement while also making sure that while we do so, we are representative of that society as a whole. I think that's really, really important and actually leads so nicely into our next question, which is, is Labour taking some or all of its voters for granted? So, I mean, we partly wrote that question in response to this crumbling of the red wall that everyone's talking about and this idea that you know you've got these left behind voters who are just not feeling like they're cared for by the party anymore but I think drawing on your answer Kira I think we could even widen that out to why have we segmented people into thinking well if you're in this section of society you're not going to care about these social justice issues and abstractions and if you're in this social justice split you're not going to care about that yeah how do we kind of go forward to having a vision for the nation and having all of these voters who could be attracted to Labour and should be because they, uh, you know, provide a certain vision. How do we kind of go forward from there? If I go to Nathan first and then we'll go to Kira. Sure. It's, I mean, it's a really important question. I think it's probably the, the existential question for the party going forward. I think it's about having a leader who's able to communicate a message, you're able to do that. Keir started brilliantly. It, it's not well, brilliant in the past few weeks, but who knows, it happens to a lot of opposition leaders. I think leadership is, is very important to that end. I, I think Andy Burnham's shown that, you know, the messenger is equally as important as the message. I would also say that it's about values as well, communicating those labour values and being able to frame those in a way that speaks to a unifying vision of the country. I think it's about being forward-looking as well. I had a few conversations with with older voters who were saying, I think it's great that a young person's running for council. I think a lot, often a lot of those divides are imagined and, and often, you know, quite forced by, by people with you know, negative intentions. I think there is, a, there is a lot of unity in the country. I think if we can have a vision that is forward-looking and that has that security, aspiration, fairness at its heart, I think that's something that the majority of people can get behind. Equally, it depends on what the Tories do. The success of that is, is basically entirely dependent on, on what the Conservatives get up to in the next few years. I think, therefore, that you have to make levelling up the defining criteria for the Parliament for the next couple of years to say to communities like Berry, we were told we get levelling up and for Labour now to, to set, set criteria, you know, about skills and technical education, about jobs and, and climate, about a whole infrastructure, schools, hospitals, a variety of things, and say to the government, these are the criteria for if levelling up succeeded or failed. And I think given 
this government's record, it's very likely to fail. Don't take any glee in that. The, the issues they've identified are absolutely spot on. The solutions are so, and their ambitions uh, and priorities are so. So we have to make levelling up the priority, set some clear criteria now, uh, looking ahead to the next election, communicate those values and seek a unifying message uh, as opposed to a divisive one. I think that's a really interesting answer and really important. And I think what really stood out to me there was this idea of almost being proactive rather than reactive, which was such a, a big difficulty when you're in opposition, knowing when to do that. But that seemed like such a proactive way to go forward. Kira, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I definitely agree with what Nathan had to say. I think that um, we also need to be taking control of, like I said earlier about the narrative of what we have and haven't done over the past 10 years. You know, it wasn't Labour implemented austerity, even if local areas have a Labour MP, they don't necessarily have control over how much funding their local council gets, for example. So I think that where we were successful over this election is where we managed to prove ourselves and show our track record. I'd like to point to Wales in that respect, where people trusted Labour to deliver and Labour did. And that's obviously why Wales then turned out and obviously reframed Labour as the party for Wales and showed that how successful Labour can be in power. So I think that we need to have a good look at what the wider Labour movement means to us and show the country what our trade unions have been doing during this pandemic, what our local councillors and our councils have been doing for people in their communities during this pandemic and really taking that as our lead forward for this next election. It's not just about what happens in Westminster, it's about what people have been doing in, in spite of everything that the Tories have done over the past 10 years and showing that when we are in power, we can change things, even our local level. And I think that level of trust is how people will sort of like respond to us and trust us again with wider power. I think that's really interesting and also leads in really well to our next point, which is about, I suppose you've both talked about the importance of having the right policies that really target the specific communities who you're trying to engage with, but also about the way they're being communicated. And if you had to pick one of those as being Labour's issue at the moment, would you say it's a lack of engagement with policies or a dislike of the way they're being communicated and specifically with the way you highlighted Wales, maybe even less communicated or maybe even not communicating at all, certain things that might lead to more votes. So if you had to, what would you say if I go to Kira first on that? So I think the policy issue for me is that it's because of the pandemic, we haven't had been able to have a Labour Party conference since 2019 under the last leadership. And therefore, in terms of big, changing, formative manifesto policies, we can't really come up with that until we pass it by our membership. That's you know, the point of the Labour movement. If we can't pass our policies by our membership, it, it basically becomes obsolete. So I think the problem is that now our policies are from 2019. And although we have them from the last election and the ones we still have, it's then also very hard for Keir to shape his own narrative and say, well, this is the new leadership of the Labour Party, while just taking on bulk the same policies from the previous leadership, so which is the situation that we're in. However fantastic many of those policy points in 2019 are, ultimately was wholesale rejected by the country. So it's then very hard for Keir to try and push those policies still while being in a new leadership and saying, well, the party's changed, but here's all the old policies from last time, even though we, we, we get that you didn't vote for them. So... I think that in terms of like a technical difficulty is is challenging. Hopefully when we have our conference in September, that'll be ironed out and ready for next year. We'll have a, some fantastic policies to go forward with. Saying that there are so many policies that I would like to see from 
carrying on with the Green New Deal stuff to the National Education Service and fantastic things in regional investment banks, for example, I think are all fantastic ideas. However, it does need to be shaped in a way that the country knows that this is not just a continuation of what was before on labour and learning from our mistakes. And I think that policies in that sense are very hard to construct, obviously, without the, that process. But I think over the past week here, taking those steps with, say, putting in West Streeting as the brief for child poverty, uh, shuffling around the shadow cabinet to make sure that people who have a focus on jobs and skills have more of a place at the top. That's ways of sort of managing that lack of policy, if you want to say. That's the things that he can control that he has done, which I think are important. So, yeah, I think that not having a clear policy platform was a massive challenge. People going, what does Labour stand for? What are you trying to tell me? I think we frankly shot ourselves in the foot in a bit because we were trying to say about the fantastic work the Labour councils were doing, but also saying vote Labour for our NHS, which obviously Labour councils don't have a control over. So I think that narrative confused that a lot too. I wouldn't particularly, if we go back in time, I don't think that would have been something that should have been pushed as much as it was during the, this campaign. But I think that now we need to learn from that and see exactly what it is that we need to deliver the next time around we come to local elections. And yeah, Nathan, to come to you on the same thing. So look, our policies are popular. They have been for a while. I think post the financial crisis, left-wing economics, redistributive economics have been, you know, polling over 60%. In places, which is a source of real comfort to the left in terms of winning elections, but it's not been enough. Uh, and we need to reckon with that. It's not sufficient to have popular policies. You need to communicate them properly. It helps to have popular policies. Don't get me wrong, and it's great that we're in a position where that's the case. But communication is is the gap there because clearly they're popular and, and, and about having those communicators, condensing it into an effective message. But I, I really do think that there's, there's a place for community organising there because having that message transmitted by a friend, a relative, someone at the bus stop is far more effective than hearing it on the news or hearing it on the doorstep from a Labour canvasser. Just because the dynamics are different in terms of trust, in terms of it's even doing it in good faith, that could be a key difference in terms of how successful we are in transmitting that message and converting those successful policies into a successful path to power, really, in terms of the electoral politics. Just to follow on, I thought that was really interesting. And I just was thinking as you were talking of what my friends often say when Labour comes out with their policies like they did in 2019, was that a lot of the time people don't believe that Labour could actually deliver on a lot of the things that they say they can. And I thought, what would be your reaction to that in terms of convincing people that that was a possibility? I think it's definitely true to say that there are people who don't think that our policies add up. We're lucky that they do. So there's a foundation. I mean, in terms of the 2017 manifesto, that was fully costed and it provides a, a foundation going forward. So it, it's important to say that, to, to change the emphasis, I would say, to say, here's our policy on renewables, on investing in renewables. It's going to be paid for by this raising corporation tax or this raising the top rate of income tax. And actually not letting the policy speak for themselves, situating them in the context of here's how we're going to pay for them. Because the Tories have the opposite problem in the sense that people do generally trust them with the economy for some reason. I don't think that's backed up by their record, um, but they do. So they have to communicate those, those values and they go overboard to do that. I think we have to go overboard and saying this is costed by a raising, raising corporation tax or um, windfall tax or all this stuff. I think that's the way to do it. Going overboard and saying this will be paid for by. I think we were able to do that to a large degree in 2017, which was successful. Obviously didn't get us over the line, but I think it does provide a foundation going forward for saying, 
this is what happens if it's fully costed and emphasizing the cost as opposed to the the, the products really and and also you know having a, a detailed manifesto but in terms of the campaign going for three or four big policies you know don't give people a whole shifting it day to day from this this to that have a clear foundational message from which everything comes I think that's really fascinating and as you were just talking it kind of reminded me of what's going on in America right now with Biden because I think he did his just sort of I don't even know if it was actually his state of the union because of like the way things are with the pandemic but it was his sort of state of the union post 100 days speech and I know that he'd done the they he's really going for a big government approach as you would expect given the current economic situation and the pandemic but he framed so much of the speech around oh yeah and how are we going to fund this and then he did that as well and it was clear that he was trying to kind of appeal to a, a more middle ground base there even though actually his policies for America at least were really shifting towards that left big government aspect which I found really fascinating so something maybe that is something that can kind of work over here as well for Labour and I think we touched a lot on this already in the previous question. Um, actually, Kira, you it was really insightful to know that you hadn't had a conference yet, which kind of helps to understand why it seems like it's harder for Labour to say, well, we've got a completely new set of policies because they kind of don't yet because they need to form their new policies. But I guess thinking forward to the conference in September, what kind of positions or policies do you think Labour can take that would be more appealing to a large enough majority come the next election? Yeah, so as I said, there were some fantastic points that have come last time, which were many developed over a number of years with, you know, trade unions coming up through there, especially things like the Green New Deal. There were lots of them from like grassroots campaigns as well. So I think that we need to be talking about two or three main key ideas for the country and then discussing lots of the different policy platforms too. But as sort of Nathan was saying before, it's about how you package it up. I think sometimes with the voters who go, we've got all these amazing ideas, but how can you you cost them? And as Nathan said, look, we did cost them, but it was the narrative behind it that was, you know, Labour's going to promise everything and deliver nothing. And unfortunately, I think too often that, that, that cut through. So I think that in terms of what we've seen with this pandemic, people being out of job just en masse, um, not being able to get into those industries that they were traditionally in, um, not being able to retrain and not being financially supported to do so, wanting to get back into education and wanting to sort of kickstart their career again, but just not having the support either from the government financially or because they've got childcare or other reasons. So I think, um, as we were talking about in the last manifesto, but particularly we need to in the future look more into uh, lifelong education, so making sure that people can retrain at any point in their lives. People are given the financial and social ability to do so, like making sure you can access education through better transport, making sure that transport in our regions is much, much stronger. So education and transport is two key things, but as we did with the last Labour government, making sure that child poverty is a huge focus. To the start of the podcast, we briefly mentioned our aspiration, but I think that all of the policies that Labour should be pushing, the key theme behind them should be aspiration, not just as individuals, but for our communities and for our towns. You know, you shouldn't have to go to big cities to be able to pursue the career that you want. And then when you're in big cities, you shouldn't have to then struggle with rent and transport and fighting so many others for the good, the good jobs in those those areas and with the increase of population because of people leaving their regions. So I think that we need to focus on aspiration for our communities, showing a national picture, but also prioritising local voices, making sure that now we've got, I think it's 11 out of 13 of our 
country's metro mayors, making sure they're taking a, a, a real step forward with this, prioritising their voices and letting them speak for their regions too, and showing that we can win in areas like Cornwall and up in the northeast at the same time. And, you know, people in those areas have similar needs in terms of child poverty and deprivation and access to services and support from the government, but showing that actually they all have their own regional stories to tell to and their own regional voices that can take the lead there. So showing that I think, for me, the, the days of Westminster politics are dwindling. I think the leader of the Labour Party is a really significant figure, but they're the leader of the Labour movement too. And I think that movement needs to take a much greater step forward. You know, whereas 50 years ago, the head of the Trade Union Congress would be a well-known public figure. Unfortunately, in today, they're, they're just not. And where trade union figures are in the news, it's often because something's gone wrong in terms of corruption or jobs for mates, etc. And people then get very, you know, feel very let down by their trade union. I think that we need to be focusing more on that too. So messages for our regions, people who it's being, people who are delivering it is also important um, and making sure we're decentralising a lot of it. But when we're delivering a national picture, discussing the things that are the same across the country in terms of education, transport, greener jobs. Yeah, I think that to me would sum up a good policy platform to go forward with. But ultimately, it's it's, it's hard to tell where we are. We need to be even a year's time post-pandemic, let alone, you know, in, in four or five years time too. Yeah, I think, I mean, it is very tough sort of trying to think about policy going forward in these unprecedented times as it's so often called by well ask the media <laughs> but yeah definitely I think that seems like a really interesting way going forward and a nice unifying way which even Keir Starmer I think wanted to kind of use to define his leadership. Nathan is there anything that you're kind of looking forward to in this upcoming conference or anything that you'd really like to see voted through or, or on the table? Well I'd love to be able to get to conference that'd be great I wasn't able to make 2019 and it is for a hack like me it is better than my birthday it's like everything rolled into it <laughs> uh, or our birthday I should say here because we're all born on the same day but in terms of policy I think it's it is early we, we're not going to know what the country's going to look like by the time of the next election but I think it's about taking your foundational principles and I would look for something like a British contract I think you know a bit of contract theory thrown in there to say you know we want to give power to communities or power to councils in terms of buses that's going to make a massive difference locally in terms of the environment in terms of creating green jobs giving councils the freedom to set the borough legally trialing the role of local councils and, and uh, metro mayors within the constitution that doesn't exist at the moment they can quite literally the government can override what it wants to do as we saw in october with tier three more you know historically with, with abolishing the glc in, in in the 1980s so we need to say we'll give greater power to local councils on the promise that that power is given back to communities. I think that's the key thing, that it can't be power that's given to town halls directly. It has to be given back to people, back to communities. And I think that would form the basis of a British contract. That, that's what I'm into. I'm, you know, looking at the next year, I've only got a one-year term within uh, Berry Council, but seeing how much we can do within that is to really give back power to communities and whilst also unifying people around a, a collective vision for the borough, but saying, you know, communities know better how to spend that how to spend council tax and, and, and bureaucrats in the town hall. Uh, I think that's a key point and about giving power back to people. I think people feel a lot a lot better as a result of it. I think the success of Andy Burnham shows a lot of that because people like having a metro mayor. I mean, in 2014, when it was first muted, and by 2017, in the first election, I don't think people knew what its role was. I think now, possibly because of COVID, they do. 
I think we're appreciative of it. I think we're appreciative that power is building less centrally and that there is a, a new layer of government that, that speaks better for us. So I think it's about giving power back to people, power back to communities, and, and that's how I think we should look for the next conference. Really interesting. And um, yeah, bringing back the idea of communities and them being the sole focus of any sort of political policy or anything or any kind of any kind of political policy, basically. I think we've already touched on this, but um, maybe we can go a little bit more in depth because I know uh, one of the biggest things to come out of the last local elections was the loss of Hartlepool. And I know the last time that a sitting government won a by-election was obviously in the 1980s during Thatcher's time, which was also so happened to be during the Falkland War. And would you say that Johnson took Hartlepool because of his performance during the pandemic? Is that the major factor there or is there any anything else? Uh, so I mentioned a few things that I was hearing on the doors earlier from the fact that the Metro Mayor was doing particularly well. They managed to make a bit of a figure of himself in Bent Houchen. Uh, the fact that people are worried that if they didn't have a Conservative MP like some of the neighbouring constituencies, they wouldn't get the same level of investment. People had seen Boris Johnson on the doors quite a lot because he'd always been focusing on trying to sort of maintain a grip on that region. When lots of the Red Wall seats were lost in 2019, people were talking about them as, as a temporary thing. People had lent their vote to the Conservatives. Actually, you know, he wants to solidify that and make it a long term thing. So obviously being there quite a lot, investing a lot, showing a face, that were all very important points to make in that. Uh, and also just a wider disillusionment with Labour, saying that we've been in power for so long because it had a Labour MP, when obviously that's just a wider talk about what Labour has in power and how much the local MP has power over that area. And there's also, for me, a couple of conversations about what the local Labour Council had done. Um, when actually Labour hadn't had a council in Hartlepool for quite some time. But there was still the idea that because it wasn't Conservative, it was therefore Labour, and it could only either be one of the two, as opposed to you know, a, a mix of a sort of coalition of independence or an overall control in terms of the council's power. So I think it was a very complex and interesting like, set of opinions on the door. In terms of things that I went up expecting, I went up expecting lots of conversations on Brexit. I went up expecting uh, a lot of conversations on um, things about London and sort of like London elite, that kind of thing. Things that you sort of hear the editors of newspapers saying that these regions are talking about. And though there was kind of the idea of that sort of, you know, there and it was present every now and then, but, you know, Brexit wasn't overwhelming and Jeremy Corbyn was mentioned, but much like less than I would have expected. It was mainly about that regional focus, Boris Johnson delivering for those regions and talking about this idea of levelling up and whatever that means. But at this point, it's sort of, seems that people were talking about levelling up as anything better than what it is now and therefore why would you continue to vote for a Labour MP if the Labour MP of the past how many years hasn't changed anything you may as well try a Tory MP right that was kind of the opinion that I was getting on the doorstep and I think that is very hard to unravel when you're talking about who's in power who has sway over power who can actually make changes because obviously your local MP is your only real touch to Westminster and wider politics too so I think there's a wider conversation to be had about why Labour lost, but I don't think it's pinnable on one thing, whether policy, narrative, leadership, or anything like that. But I think the, the regional narrative had a big bit to play too, but I don't think that we as Labour were, were good enough at tackling that and putting Keir Ford as a figurehead. Amazing. Nathan, would you largely agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in terms of was the, the pandemic response, Johnson's, heart, uh, Johnson's focus rather, 
I think it's a bit more mixed. I think uh, the vaccine certainly was, but it has gone up and down, certainly the uh, popular perception of, of this government. I think it's worth thinking that back to February 2020, glorious time that it was. But after the government had, you know, after we left the EU, it was a massive bounce. Obviously, we were in, you know, in a transition period at the time as a Labour Party, but they were polling about 50%. And the failures in testing with stuff like tier three up here, with a various sort of array of errors, the way they bundle Christmas, where they said, don't wear a mask, do wear a mask. I mean, it goes on and on. I think between May, the, the successful procurement of the vaccine by January, the, the, the people did lose a lot of faith in the government. So it's gone up and down. But I think certainly people, you know, I suppose someone on the doorstep who said, I think you're a good candidate. And I'm not just saying that, but I want to vote for the Tories to say thank you to Boris for the vaccine. And it's very difficult to argue against that. It is very difficult, especially that person already voted for that one. But it's, it's a difficult argument to, to fight against. It's an, it's an emotional one. And I just think back to the day that my parents got a vaccine and been shielding for a year. I just think what an amazing day that was. And if people associate that with the government, then there's very little that we can do. That's really interesting. To, I suppose it's a, lo- a lot of it is opportunity and just the way circumstances fall, especially in the recent past. This next question I know wasn't on our prepared sheet, but I was just interested to see what you would say because I recently became quite disenfranchised by the Labour Party because of their a multitude of issues, but mainly like their stance on or problems with anti-Semitism. And I was wondering whether you still thought that was an issue and something that needed to be tackled, hadn't been tackled, uh, what your thoughts on that was in terms of Labour and anti-Semitism? If I come to Kira first. Yeah, um, I'll just touch briefly on it because obviously as not a Jewish person, it's very hard for me to be like, this is what I feel when I'm sort of of taking the lead from, you know, organisations like the Jewish Labour movement and the kind of things they've been discussing recently. Like, I think the idea is that we've made some fantastic progress, but there's still a long way to go. When something is as institutionalised as it was, and it did reach absolutely horrifying levels, either when facing, you know, local Jewish activists all the way up to the kind of things that very key figures in the party were happily saying or associating themselves with. You know, it was just frankly inexcusable on so many levels. But I think that we're taking steps towards making that better in ways of, you know, exploring an independent complaint system, that won't just hopefully improve the party for Jewish people, but for other minorities that have unfortunately been suffering under the, the Labour Party in the past few years who've made complaints and haven't felt they were properly dealt with. I think that accepting the HRC report in its full is, was a moment I think will go down in history for the Labour Party as everything might not have been changed in that moment, but it showed that we are taking steps towards that. I think it's really important that we are creating spaces and, make, and sort of like taking the lead from them. Like we will only be done when they feel that we're done. I think it's really important that we don't sort of park it as a problem of the past. It's something that is still present in the party. You know, we have hundreds of thousands of members and many of them have not faced any sort of election over the past two or three years because of coronavirus and moved ATMs, etc. So that means that some of the people that were causing problems for Jewish activists at a local level still in those same positions and why they don't want to come back to that if they're still there so i think there's still a long way to go but i think there's a wider conversation to be had about how you make sure that jewish activists especially jewish young people who are fighting so hard for a labor government are front and center of what we try and put as our new labor party and show that you know when they're comfortable to come back when they're comfortable to feel entirely a part of the labor party and when we have truly earned that and earned their respect and the respect of jewish communities who've let down that's when we'll stop. So I think there's a long way to go. I think as allies, especially myself, I need to sort of be 
very active in listening to how they're feeling and making sure that we're not sidelining it as a problem that's been dealt with and making sure that we are consistently calling it out and trying to make the Labour Party a safer space for people that, that need a Labour government the most. And Nathan, same question. I think we've come a really long way. You know, there's been massive steps in the past uh, year or so. And I think in terms of the atmosphere, I think in terms of the anti-Semitism crisis has always been leadership, culture and institutions. I think going and taking it back because it's institutions has been forced on the party by a statutory body, which is in itself pretty bad, but provides us with a, at least a, a, a format for improving that. And as Kira says, that provide the same framework for other protected characteristics, other communities, and to, to be able to, to be kept safe and safeguarded within the party. Culture is a place we've got long, quite a way to go on. How do we listen to Jewish activists who don't feel comfortable in the CLPs? How do we work to address that? But as I say, I think we've come a, a really long way. And I don't think that, let's not under, you know, I think, you know, Kira's been very diligent and uh, been, been a strong ally in, in this, but let's not understate, we have come a really long way in the past 12 months. It is radically different, I would say, to some of the atmospheres that we had uh, in, in, in the immediate press. So I, I think we've come a long way. I think a lot of voters have, a lot of people, voters in the Jewish community have responded to that positively. You know, we're by no means back to historic levels of support, support for, the, for the party and the community, but we are improving. And Barry certainly in a war called Sedgley down the road, it's got a, a Jewish population of over 33%. And we had a significant swing towards us. That's due to the diligence of the three councillors there and the relationships that they have with the Jewish community. In us, with, for myself, a smaller community, but an increase in support. And I feel like we've made massive progress. That's been reflected. There's still there's still some work to do, but I feel like it's it, it has been a, a game that's been changed. I think it's also important that we also listen to all ethnic minority communities, all, all groups of protected characteristics, all communities, and make sure that they're listened to as well, because I think that's equally important. No forms of discrimination are pitted against each other. I think we've got a lot to learn from, from, from Biden as well in terms of really putting that at the, at the front and centre of things and not suggesting that our voices are, are somehow disagree with us that. I don't think they do. And creating those unified narratives, but definitely come a long way. I just think that's really interesting to you say because uh, from my perspective, not as invested as both of you are in the very labour central environment a lot of the the things I hear about issues within both parties is from the main media and often it's really difficult to know who to trust in uh, what the atmosphere is still like and what whether people have made progress I think it's really interesting to hear you both say that especially um, from a perspective Nathan as well. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really interesting as well. And I second Ardi, like, I think it's really hard. Obviously, with the media, like, it could be anything because there's kind of always, they're commenting on a certain event or there's like a certain agenda or a narrative that they're trying to create. But sometimes it is really nice to know from people inside the party what the atmosphere is like. Okay, so we're just sort of moving into the final segment. So we've talked a lot about kind of long-term steps. We've talked a lot about communication and listening, I think, in a lot of the questions. So our final question is, what should Labour's next steps be in the short term, just to kind of immediately signal to the voters, we're going to be listening to you now? And as a part B to that question, what's your opinion on what Keir Starmer and kind of the national leadership has done thus far in creating that impression that going forward, there's going to be greater listening, greater communication, etc.? If we go to Kira first. Yeah, so it kind of comes into how I feel about what's been done so far and also where I think we should be going. But I think we need to stop doing things in halves. So I think we need to be very committed to a vision instead of chopping and changing and being led by polling. I think that we need to set a vision and see how that responds in the polls and not go, oh, hang on, we've lost 1% and we need to change something else. So I think that 
in terms of short-term things that we need to do, I think we need to sort out the internals of the party. We need a top team in Labour headquarters that really want to get behind Keir and support his vision. I think what we've seen over the past few weeks, months longer, is just lots of things being leaked, lots of things being sort of led to the press before they've been discussed by some people in Keir's team. I think it's also very hard when people are working online. Like when you're on Zoom, it's it's much harder to get a coherent sort of teamwork going than it is when you're all sat in a room and and being able to sort of have good discussions with each other. So I think that internally that's really important. I think that the NEC needs to continue to shape Labour uh, at every level. I think the activists, so from, as we're saying, about complaint system, making sure that's important, having the activists on local levels getting re-engaged, sending people to party conference in September who trust Keir's vision and want to sort of deliver on policies that we, we think are good for the, the government is really important. It's getting, you know, lots of CLPs turning out, delegates who want to be really like, uh, productive and conversational at a conference, not just be roundly factional for for reasons that basically just still stunted labour over the past five to ten years. People that want to sort of take, take forward a transformative vision. So I think that between now and conference, we've got a lot to do in terms of getting people there who want to sort of get behind Keir and 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 sort of move away from what was the, the past few years that we've been stuck in the same conversations over and over again. Then I think from a wider perspective, I think that our trade union partnerships, so there's lots of elections in trade unions at the moment. I think the most important one of those being the Unite election. There is a candidate there, Gerard Coyne, who could genuinely transform Unite because he wants to take it back to what's most important, which is supporting the workers that are members of Unite and not supporting, you know, multi-million pound um, libel cases because someone in United said something wrong again and you know, they're all throwing members' money at court cases for that reason. I think that so making sure that we're clearing up that bit of the labour movement too and really getting back to the values of what unionism is for, protecting workers in the workplace, advocating on their behalf and to the party. So I think that's also really important. So you see, there's lots of internal things that need to be settled before we can even begin to say, you know, we're in a good place to be in government. I think there's so much that needs sorting out, straightening out and clearing up that it's it's, it's hard to even sum it up into a few sentences. But I think we do need to do these and, you know, however boring or internal it may be for a while, I don't think we can say to the country we're ready to govern until we're ready to govern ourselves. So I think those are important things. And then hopefully by September and onwards, we'll have some good policies in place backed by people in a, in a team that's willing to get behind here and help make the next prime minister, basically. So... Yeah, so lots lots of internal things that won't necessarily make headline news, but in terms of the day-to-day function of the party, it's really important because if you're getting the little things in place, then you know there's that wider pool of ideas and good media performers and people that can deliver results for their local areas and their regions. It becomes much easier because if you've got a well-oiled machine, people will trust you to make things better for them and deliver for them when they need that. That's a really valuable insight. And I think you're so right, especially when so much of the narrative is about trust. I think governing, getting that internal governance right, then it makes it easier for voters and party members to trust governance externally as well. Nathan, same question. I think we need to do something bold in terms of listening. I think why not have a citizens assembly on the Labour Party? Listen to voters, see what they have to say. And I think it's a productive way of, of engaging the people because within that, that format and it's been successful in other parts of the world is people come to come to things in good faith and you're able to understand the sort of the contradictions in people's positions or where they're coming from and just that empathy within the party within people's relationship with the party I think that's something bold to get started with I, I would say give prominence to the Labour mayors in power you know why not have take a day off the media grid 
century to have a look at what we're doing here about buses. I think that that's something that can show to people across the country, not just in Greater Manchester, what Labour does when we're, when we're in government. So I think that would be a bit more bold. I think it's similar to, I'm not entirely equated, but what they do in the United States, it's not just the single person communicating, although the president supports them, but it's about what a Democrat mayor is doing across the country. I think let's have a similar role, be a bit bold, think outside the box in, in those ways. And something I keep banging on about again is about community organising, set up a, an infrastructure for, for CLPs, for branch parties, for, for a national level to be able to, to properly organise within communities. I think that's crucial to win that back. And as I think Kieran and I have been saying throughout this, get a message, stick to it, hammer it for a few years and be patient. I mean, as I said, said again, it's Labour Party does have a tendency to think we're the main character. We're not at the moment. There's a good chance that this government will mess it up. They've shown they're incompetent. They're just very, very lucky. So let's hope they're able to sh- show that whilst also that the country doesn't go to, go to part as well. But be bold, think outside the box, try new techniques and be patient. I know there might seem a contradiction between the two, but I don't think there is. Because uh, I think a lot of conventional wisdom within Westminster is just like so suffocating. Why should we not give some space to, to mayors on the media grid? Why should we not have a citizens' assembly? So, but also being patient and not saying just because we get one bad poll or one negative op-ed from Dan Hodges or whatever that you need to suddenly throw the baby out of the bathwater. To have a bit of an ability to see what is what is right and, uh, and what isn't, and not just you know go all Andrew Donis and say bring back Blair or go for other solutions and it's sort of like a lot of things you know that people are suggesting are slightly too simple be patient be sophisticated and look we believe in our message we believe it resonates with the priorities and values of the country so let's trust it it's amazing yeah thank you so much I feel like that's a really great place to wrap up our conversation I'd like to thank you both again for taking out your time and coming on our podcast Honestly, fascinating to talk to you. I genuinely learned so much and um, really interesting to see your like your very unique perspectives from coming from within the party. Yeah, just second what you say, Ardi. Once again, thank you so much for coming to talk to us on the podcast today. I equally learned loads and it was really nice to get those valuable perspectives. And I kind of look forward to seeing what both of you guys get up to in the future. Do you guys have any closing words? I'd just like to say thank you both for having me and also... I'm really glad that Nathan's been elected, like having young councillors like Nathan, especially people that have got such like drive and passion for the party is, is what we'll see us into the future and into some of the things that have been saying about communities and localism and the things that really matter. Thank you very much for, for, for hosting. It's a brilliant podcast. Best of luck for the future. And thanks to Kira again for uh, all that great work in the party and, and everything. And look forward to hopefully working with, with all, all three of you in the future to get a fairer country. And you know, really best of luck. It's great that media organisations that like you're setting up you know, we've, we've all had our gripes with the media in this conversation, so hopefully you're part of the solution in terms of tackling that. But really best of luck, guys. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, of course, put both of your Twitters in our description so anyone listening can go and follow you, take a look at what you're doing. But once again, thanks. And thank you to everyone listening. And hope you tune in again next time. Thank you. Bye, everyone. The Empowered Opinions Podcast. Empowering the voices of today. If you would like to hear more from us, you can check out our website at empoweredjournalism.com or follow us on social media at Empowered Journals on Twitter and Empowered Journalism everywhere else.